He played carol gun. His rating was higher. But from move seventeen, the king's side was mine. Took my chances fast. My rook was a knife, and my almighty queen, a beast on each six. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ladies' Night, the official podcast of U.S. Chess Women. I'm your host Jennifer Chahadi, and you're listening to the artist Huga of HugaMusica.com. And that is a song that certainly captured my heart. Oh, Capablanca. And oh, what a season it's been for chess. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Ladies' Night. I am so excited to introduce today's guest, Adia Anyango. I've been a personal admirer of Adia for a while. Adia has previously reached the expert U.S. chess ranking, and she's working very hard at her goal to become a chess master, which would no doubt inspire her many students and fans. Adia has a ladies' night all-female chess team in the Commercial Chess League, and so of course I could not wait long to have her on our ladies' night podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Adia. Thank you. Thank you. And of course, I love, love, love the name of your podcast. Yeah, I noticed that you said that and I was happy because, you know, Ladies' Night, it's just such a great uh, play on words. The World Chess Hall of Fame actually had a show, Ladies' Night, a celebration of female chess artists. Yes, yes. Amazing. So first of all, Adia, tell us a little bit about the favorite thing that you do in your life in chess, because you have so many different activities, as I alluded to in the intro. Well, favorite is is a difficult one to lock down, but I I just enjoy doing things to promote uh, the sport of chess and especially with amongst women and, you know, and beyond. So I, I enjoy doing things to promote chess, organizing events for, for players, whether they are social events or even tournaments. And doing things both within the U.S. and and when I travel. I I think chess is something that kind of uh, goes with me wherever I go. Yes, I I mentioned that that you're known as a chess traveler online and on Instagram. Where did this moniker come from? And what's the absolute favorite place that you visited for chess? Mm, Great question. Uh, Well, I guess I've always always loved chess. Uh, I've always been passionate about chess. Ever since I was young and picked it up, um, however, traveling is always something that I have wanted to do. I came from a family where traveling was embraced on both sides of my family, but you know, as a youngster, I always had to just look at that from afar and you know talk with family who would travel and ask them about countries they've been to look at shows like National Geographic and uh, different travel channels. And so I always had a desire and interest in traveling. Uh, but as many might know, uh, it's very easy to make excuses not to travel and not to get out there. So, you know, through 
throughout many years of my life, I really didn't do so much traveling. And uh, it wasn't until my mother became ill and I was taking, taking care of my mother and after her passing that I decided that I was no longer going to make excuses and I was going to see this great world that we live in, travel the world. And uh, that was in 2012 where I said I would dedicate myself to traveling, traveling on a budget, traveling within, within, within my means. And, uh, since then I've traveled to over 30 something countries. And the reason that I merged the, the title chess traveler is because wherever I travel, whenever I travel, I always incorporate chess. I always try to, uh, to incorporate chess, to, look into the history of chess in that country, to reach out with the chess community in that country, to visit the chess clubs, to visit the chess parks, to play in tournaments. And so I said, why not? Chess Traveler sounds good to me. Uh, and <laughs> that's kind of how the name was, was, was born for, my, for me. The question about the favorite country. Now that is really hard because I have enjoyed so many countries. I mean, I just came from Spain this past summer and had an amazing time, um, was treated so nicely by the people, uh, by the chess clubs, by all of the people I met. I got to visit at least three or four chess clubs in Spain, played in two major events, had so much fun. Egypt visited with international masters and uh, got to play while traveling the Nile. I mean, how, how can you beat that? Um, but I think a country that really ranks really high up there for me would have to be when I traveled to Cuba. The players really went above and beyond. You know, I got to play at Capablanca Chess Club, visit Capablanca's grave, play in several of the parks there on the promenade, and met players from Havana as well as from other parts other parts of Cuba and just such a friendly spirit as I, as I encounter in all countries. I mean, I even had players come international masters coming out just to visit and say hi and to push pawns with me. An amazing feeling in Cuba, everywhere you go, everyone you meet has an understanding and uh, understanding of chess and interest in chess. Uh, so I actually ended my visit there by throwing a tournament in Cuba. So I, I really, really enjoyed that. Wow, that's amazing. And um, I am inspired also by your story of your mother. I also lost my mother too young and she inspires me every day. Uh, what do you think your mom would feel about this new path that you've taken to travel and you know try to make this national master title? Uh, I think she would be extremely supportive. Um, and extremely happy. I mean, my mom was a traveler herself. My mom, my grandmother, my mother traveled on her own to Kenya in the 60s, you know, and one of the first in her family on her side to, to do so. So she, I mean, her story help is, is part of what has made me a traveler as well as my father's story. Uh, but so they definitely would embrace my travel. And the chess, my mom was always, while well, she was alive, uh, supportive of chess. And the actuality, when I moved back to New York City, uh, when I moved back to New York City, it was my mother who was talking to me about Maurice Ashley, who at that time I knew but had never met, and who said, you know, he plays at my friend's, my friend's place, sister's place. 
you should try to meet him. She was the one who told me that he also frequents the Oxford Gambit, which was a club in Brooklyn back then. So my mom was has always been extremely supportive and has even come out to, uh, when she was alive, uh, some of the events that I used to do in Brooklyn in the parks there. Uh, I think she'd be very happy, extremely happy that I'm following my passion. Indeed. And um, as we speak, it is Black History Month. And I want to get your perspective on how important representation is in the game of chess. And you mentioned Maurice Ashley and, um, you know, obviously he's a role model for so many people. Yes, yes. Um, I I think representation is extremely important uh, for young people to see someone that they connect with that represents them can help inspire them to want to, you know, push forward or can inspire something or trigger something within them. Uh, so I, I feel that representation and diversity is, is extremely important, which is another thing that I love about the ladies' night team is that it is extremely diverse. And we have ladies from all around the world, actually, represented, represented on the team, as well as all ages. For a young person to see someone that looks like them inspires them to say, I can do that, or I might want to do that. I might be interested in doing that. And the impact one might have, you may not even know until after, or you may never know. You may not, you may not even, even know the impact that you might have on, on a young person. I agree. And I was so grateful that you came out to inspire the Philly girls as part of the ASAP program. I think that was maybe two years ago. But I, I also wanted to ask you, as I know, your goal is to become the first African-American female chess master in the United States. And of course, that would have a lot of impact on young people. Yeah, I, I actually hope it would have an impact on young and old because um, I'm, I'm no youngster youngster. And I think it's definitely would be an atypical thing. These goals be, being set, you know, I, I, I would hope it would inspire young people to, and older people to know that you can do anything you set your mind to at any age, at any time. It's definitely something that I've decided that I will make happen in terms of making master. Whether I'll become the first, I don't know, but uh, it's definitely something on my to-do list, a little checkbox to-do list on my vision board. And from there, hoping that we will have many more masters to come. Absolutely. And yes, uh, I, I didn't mean to um, put words in your mouth there with the first, because of course, if the goal was to become the first and you maybe have to root against somebody else. And I, I know that's not your thing. <laughs> yes, it's absolutely not because I'm so supportive of all the young people who are also out there playing and, and working hard. I'm a former athlete. You know, I used to run cross country track and field. So I am a competitor and I am rooting for myself. But, you know, as a teacher and a coach, can't help but be extremely supportive and proud of all the other young players out there that are also on the rise. So, yeah, I, I, I just look forward to, to the day that it happens and a celebration it'll be. Well, a lot of times there's synchronicity with these things as, you know, there were these two nine-year-old, eight-year-old girls, Rachel Lee and Alice Lee, who both became expert the exact same week, breaking a record for the youngest ever yes. um, female to make experts. So I think that maybe there will be some synchronicity there. But how do we reach out to more African-American girls? Because our, I think that we have 
um, increased our um, female drives, but we also want to make sure that we're thinking about intersectionality, that we're not just thinking about um, girls, but we're thinking about making the game more accessible to everyone. Yes. You know, I, I, I think some of the biggest barriers are exposure, right? In terms of um, exposing young people to the game. You know, so I, in addition to competing and playing, of course, I, I teach and, uh, and coach. And so I run uh, both after school programs and school wide programs. I have a, a few programs that are predominantly African American Latino schools. And one of my programs that I started up a few years ago really highlighted the beauty of school wide programs, school wide programs that expose all kids to the sport. And the reason I say this is because, you know, at this school, we, we launched a school-wide program where every kid would receive chess in curriculum, just as they would basketball or gym or arts or any other, other subject. And then we also held, had an after-school program, and we also tied that to playing tournaments. Now, when I started this program, only three kids at the school had any experience with chess, and the school had about, a, about uh, I think, 80 to 100 kids. Only three kids had any exposure to chess. And what was beautiful to see was the kids' growth. And even more amazing was that from the beginning of the program, one of the children who happened to be a young girl who was very talented and very much of the attitude that this is not for me. She didn't feel that she was any good. She was very bright, very bright. But as anyone who's starting chess may feel that they don't know as much just because it's a learning process, right? You're learning it all for the first time. And so she said, no, this isn't, she doesn't, she doesn't like chess and she's not good at it. This was, was her view. And in fact, she was pretty good at it, and I used to, to tell her that. After we had our first quiz, she actually scored the highest in the class, highest in the school. And from there, she started to become hooked. Uh, the end of the story is the young girl who maybe would have never stayed in a, a program had she not been receiving in curriculum ended up becoming the strongest player in the school. She was seven or eight years old at the time within... Three months of her playing in tournaments, she was on a top 100 list for her age category. I really think that the more after-school programs reaching out to kids, you know, can help to bridge some of some of this gap. I agree. And, you know, the interview with Rochelle Ballantyne also struck me is because she got started in chess young enough that she wasn't as sensitive to the, you know, sexism and racism that she might experience as a, a female black chess player. But she fell in the love of the game at that point. So I think that that was really useful because instead of leaving the game because of these harassments or, you know, just uh, microaggressions, it was already hooked into her before she was as sensitive. And I think that that is perhaps one reason why it's so important to get people young. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think also when you do start young, and you have you have that support system. You have a coach. Potentially, you have you know uh, uh, other teammates, parents coming with you to to events and, and things of that nature. And so, if you do experience those things, you're not alone as well. And so, 
quite possibly you will have uh, a support system that's able to help you work through those as opposed to to uh, to leaving as well. What I find is when you expose young people to the sport, they are often interested. Uh, but you have to expose them first because when you just say chess, you know, sometimes it can be intimidating uh, because people don't know how to play. Um, but once you teach them how to play, you know, young people really gravitate towards and you see it with program after program that is started around the country. And so I think we need more in curriculum programs and more after school programs. The beautiful thing that in curriculum programs do is that it plants the seeds. And so uh, with after school programs, you can sometimes have a selection bias, right, in terms of whether or not a parent signs their child up for it, whether or not a parent can afford it. So you can have certain selection biases, biases, but when you have in curriculum programs, then you're exposing everyone to it. You know, me myself, as someone who was, you know, a, a cross country runner and went to states, had scholarship offers, I myself would have never been identified as a runner had it not been for my gym teacher who saw me running and identified that they felt I had talent. A good friend of mine, Otto Baldwin, who went to the Olympics and won for his country from Trinidad. He also was a runner who was identified because of sports programs in the school that saw him running and said, this guy needs to get on a track field. In chess, we need to have these in-curriculum programs to expose all kids to the sport. And you never know uh, what can even be uncovered, what talented players we might have out there that don't even know how to play yet. One thing I've always really admired about you idea, which I forgot to mention the intro, is your willingness to do blindfold exhibitions. Because I got to tell you, I tried once or twice. I've done it. Okay, I've done a few. But um, it's always very, very difficult. And I have such a massive headache afterwards. Yeah, I, you know, I really enjoy blindfold chess. I really enjoy blindfold chess. And um, it highlights just setting your mind to something because I can still remember the first time that I saw someone do blindfold chess and I was just in complete awe as they beat me sitting in one room, throwing a ball against the wall and not looking at the board. As I sat there intensely focused on my board with my hands on my head and lost the game. And I was just like, wow, that's amazing. And then I decided that I wanted to try it. Uh, but it wasn't for till a few years later. And the first time that I ever played blindfold chess, I went about 16 moves deep. And ever since then, I've been going playing full games, sometimes lasting over 70 moves. And uh, really have enjoyed it. When I was in South Africa, for the first time, I actually did, did an actual exhibition, which was really amazing. A lot of credit to Ruben and, and his team out there for putting on such a great uh, chess Expo and allowing me to be a, a be a part of that uh, once he found out that I played blindfold chess. It's something that, you know, I just enjoy doing and uh, try to train at it, playing people whenever I can. I'm no Timor, but I played as many as five boards uh, simultaneously blindfold. When when people say, is it hard? I, I don't I don't know. I mean, I, I just do it. It just, I, I didn't come up with any kind of method for doing it or anything like that. I just 
can kind of see the board in my head and remember where pieces are. After the first year that I was playing blindfold chess, one of my friends, Julius Lopez, when he looked at the game, I played, I was playing blindfold and my other friend was playing, was playing sighted. And this is a friend that I go back and forth with him when we play sighted blitz. And I, I beat him very convincingly. And my friend said, Adia, I think you play better blindfolded than sighted. And so we just laughed about that. That's incredible because uh, blindfold chess and enjoyable are not two words that I often hear together. <laughs> Maybe you have to get together with Timor and be the blindfold queen. Oh man, Timor is just amazing. I mean, I, I mean, I'm just in awe of what he does. I mean, to play so many boards blindfold at one time while riding a bike, probably doing his taxes in his head. You know, it's just amazing to me. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow, Timur doing his own taxes. I have a feeling he has a a friend in finance who does them for him. Like, I I can't imagine Timur sitting down and doing something so mundane because he's... (laughs) (laughs) It's really a striking image. I'm going to have to ask Jen Valens about that. (laughs) So true. (laughs) Yeah, but I, I really enjoy it. And I think... Honestly, I, I try to expose my students to blindfold chess as well, and I always have them try, and they often surprise themselves. I think blindfold chess is one where you should try it. It seems so daunting. Chess itself seems so is so challenging, and so the thought of doing it without looking at the board is even scarier. But each year when I introduce it to students, I always have some students who surprise themselves with how far they're able to to see the board without looking at it. I do think that it holds some value. There's been some debate about that in terms of your vi- you know visualizing the board. Oh yeah. I think it's a fantastic metaphor. Like I really like the way you put it. I think that uh, blindfold chess is to chess players what chess is to non-chess players. Yeah. So that can really allow you to sympathize with that adult, your friend who you've been trying to get into the game and they're like, no, chess is too hard. It's not for me. Honestly, that was the way that I used to think about blindfold chess. Like, it's not for me. I don't want my head to hurt that much, you know. And I gave it a try. And the point is that when you set yourself a difficult challenge, by virtue of it being difficult, you feel awesome afterwards, just like a tough workout at the gym. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's something where when you try it, you know, you can get some gratification with each time going further potentially as well. But um, yeah, I've had some very interesting blindfold games and uh, played players higher rated than me in blindfolds and been able to to draw them and sometimes beat them and players lower rated than me. I'll play players who are playing me sighted and players who are playing me blindfold. But I've had some of my truly challenging games from guys like International Master Farai Mendeza who you know, he just, when he plays me in blindfold, he just destroys me. And, you know, he said blindfold, that was the way that he always played the game because he didn't have the board. And and so he said he would be playing it in his head as he's walking home from uh, when he was younger. You don't want to get into a blindfold match with him. And <laughs> he really plays blindfold chess extremely well, probably 
on an international master level as well. That's incredible. Although I have to say from my armchair psychologist uh, point of view, I feel that if you're playing blindfold chess as well as you're playing sighted chess, maybe that can give you some insights, pun intended, (laughs) that could help you with your regular game. Because it feels like there should be, if you're that talented at blindfold chess, it feels like the ceiling for sighted chess for Mm -hmm. you should be even higher. That maybe there's something that's uh, holding you back in the sighted board if the blindfold is so useful, like perhaps the pieces are getting cluttered or it's like you're losing focus at key moments. Maybe the forced focus of blindfold chess is helping you, whereas you need to, you know, work on that focus more in sighted chess. Yes. I mean, I think, I think you definitely have this forced focus in, in blindfold chess and uh, where you really have to pay attention to every thing going on in all aspects of the of the game so yeah yeah very true very true i i (laughs) hey i want you to get to 2200 also because you you told me that you were interested in having a poker lesson with me but you want to make 2200 first because you don't want to get distracted and i told you that indeed the poker lessons are completely on me because it'll be a celebration for you becoming a chess master Oh man, that is that is yes. I I I am so excited about that. I'm gonna put that on my vision board as well. The poker lessons. I mean, I you know we have a lot of of crossover with chess and poker, and I have wanted that for so long. But I do know that you know there is just so much one can do at one time, right? And <laughs> and so I uh, yeah, I definitely feel the the weight of of trying to make master and the discipline and work that it takes they have to uh not try to take on on such another task learning poker but yeah i i would be so excited and honored to learn it from one of the best yes well tell me more about how you are planning to break that big 2200 barrier um books training programs what's the What's the plan and, you know, help us inspire other adult improvers as Ben Johnson calls it on his perpetual podcast. My story of, of making it to expert is, is not the typical one. And so I don't have the background of chess coaching. I didn't start playing tournaments, you know, scholastic chess. I was not involved in any of that. I actually started playing as an adult. And so my training methods have been different than other players' methods have been. I've actually have not received uh, any intense individual one-on-one coaching uh, up until this time. Part of the plan of trying to to make master is to do some of the similar things that I was doing when I was trying to hone my skills as a player who was rated under 1500 under under even 1200 I think after my first tournament I took a disciplined school approach educational approach in terms of scheduling time and treating treating chess like a class setting goals and scheduling certain number of hours a day that I would would train I think that that is is extremely important scheduling protected time time that you don't schedule over or decide that you're not going to do so trying to treat it like a like an undergraduate course trying to balance the uh hours of teaching 
coaching and personal growth, as well as doing some of the other things that I'm committed to, uh, including traveling. Well, I think that's so important because, I mean, giving yourself that protected time, I think today, especially with a you know, mobile devices, relationships, a lot of adults and particularly women might not feel like they can reserve an hour where they're just studying chess and, you know, doing their own thing. And I, I think that declaring your intentions to your friends and your network is a really important part of that. So this could be really inspiring to some of our other listeners who are also adults who perhaps want to get stronger, but they haven't even thought of it because this is, something that we always talk about with children, you know, children getting better, but I'm totally with you. I think adults can get better too. It's all about approach and flexibility of mind and setting aside the time. To me, that, that has been important. I mean, there are always, there's so many distractions, so many things that can, important things that can, uh, take precedence. And so, uh, sometimes I just have to cut some sleep out even maybe, (laughs) um, or, you know, try to schedule protected time for six in the morning or, you know, before the day starts, knowing that as the day goes on, it gets more and more chaotic. I also am a big believer of, of challenges and working with others because I feel that we can get things, we can uh, accomplish more together than apart. Even recently, I've started some challenges with friends where we uh, try to dedicate ourselves to do, for example, spending a certain amount of time doing puzzles a day. If we don't uh, fulfill our goal, then we have a consequence, you know, where we put money in the jar. And at the end of the month, we'll go out for some tea, coffee or drinks you know, with, with the money in the jar, doing things like that, that can be a motivation as well as a support for you. You're able to find people where you can work together and motivate people. That could be very, very helpful. I actually run a online women's group uh, for chess where we meet every, for the last two years, every Monday evening, and we go over chess material. We go over our games. Sometimes we work through certain books. Right now we're working through an endgame book and a porn structure book. To me, the beauty of doing it together is it holds you accountable. And, you know, again, you have other people that you can bounce ideas off of and there's nowhere to hide. You know, it's easier to break a commitment to yourself with uh, no one holding you accountable than to a group. So I try to incorporate things like like this that I think can be helpful for myself, but also helpful for others who are interested in improving and, and, and getting better as well. So And it sounds like fun too. I mean some of the events that you do, like the the ladies brunch where you um, meet up with other female chess players and then also study some chess on Skype or at the brunch, mm-hmm. followed by going to like the chess and checkers house, like I think that it's important for people to realize that whether you're a young player who's, you know, one of the best in the world, like a Carissa Yip or a Jennifer Yu, or an aspiring chess master who plays five blindfold games at once like yourself, even our role models are partly in this chess game because it's fun and the social atmosphere around chess are fun. I mean, this is even true for people like Magnus and Fabi. You should see them 
at the Sinkfield Cup after the closing ceremony playing bug house. It's it's not it's not just about girls wanting to have fun. Everybody who plays this game wants to have fun. Yeah, absolutely. And and for years I've been organizing events that uh try to tap into uh the social aspect of chess as well as the cerebral aspect of chess. And so over the years through uh through my other Facebook group, Chess Connections, I have organized events such as uh, Chess and the Arts, where we go to the museum and then incorporate chess. Chess and volleyball, where we meet up for volleyball and play chess as well. I've, I've run chess and skating events, ice skating events. And most recently, I st- started also doing some women's only events um, just to have that uh, protected time for women where women can come together kind of bonding. Um, because as you know, many times when you have any, uh, type of chess events, there may only be one or two women, uh, present. And what I have been finding is that when you have some of these women's only events, you, you do get women coming out in numbers that you don't have when you have mixed gender events. So, well, that's wonderful. You know, I follow uh, on Twitter, Brian Koppelman, who's a film director and he has a podcast and one, he had a lot of inspiring tweets at the beginning of the year about how you should protect your goals and your ambitions and make sure that the people that you're sharing them with are supportive because there are always these haters who aren't sure how to achieve their goals. So when they hear about another adult who has wants to write a book, wants to become an international master wants to, you know, change paths and do something amazing, even at the age of 40, 50, 60 plus, as, you know, we see great examples of this, that sometimes you have to make sure that the people around you are positive. And I think that it's it's awesome that it seems that that happened to you organically because the chess community was very, very much cheering you on. And um, do you have advice for people who maybe don't have that kind of, you know, positive network that might find that people kind of laugh when they say, Hey, I want to do this. I'm 50 and I want to become a national master. I am, I am only 1500 and people just kind of laugh at them. Um, what advice would you have to somebody like that? You will find both types of people in there within their circles. People not always being supportive of your ideas. You have to be strong within yourself. I, I believe one, be able to assess negative Nancy's or people who might not be so supportive uh, of your idea. I think it is important to uh, be wise in terms of your, who you surround yourself with um, because that can impact your thoughts, your uh, view on how you can uh, on making your goals. But I, 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 my, my advice would be to create your goals and to create your vision board and not to allow outside influencers to um, to alter them. And so that means whether people are supportive or not supportive, to really get your strength from your vision, from your goal. And rem- remember that there will be, there will be people who are not supportive. Uh, and there can be a tendency to focus on the one or two people that are not supportive and forget about the fact that you have hundreds who might be supportive. Now, you do have people that maybe are in smaller towns or more rural areas where you don't have a chess community. You know, New York City is, is quite unique and quite different from many other places in that 
we have, you know, a pretty large chess community. When I lived in Mississippi, where I was doing my residency, there was no chess community that I could find anywhere. And so that's where online communities can really be a benefit, you know. And uh, one of the reasons I started Chess Connections was connecting people on and off the board. And I'm always filled with joy when I go someplace and meet someone in another state or even another country and they tell me they're part of Chess Connections and we meet. And so I feel like online communities can become your community and, and can be quite supportive as well. Uh, so you can, you can find that even if you don't have that support within your direct community, uh, you can potentially find that support in online communities. And the chess world, you know, it really, uh, it's international. And so any country you go into, you can tap into, into the chess community. And social media kind of brings those worlds all together as if we're all here together as one. So you have to, to seek out or surround yourself with, with, with people who are supportive of, of these goals and, and uh, you know, can be a positive support network for you because it, it does get challenging and difficult. So um, I, I think those things are, are, are beneficial and helpful. Yes, that's wonderful advice. I mean, positivity, I think, is so important. I mean, not everybody needs it as much. What I find is that I'm a relentlessly positive person. I really thrive on optimism and positivity, which certainly Yaz and Maurice like to make fun of me that sometimes I turn a negative into a positive on the broadcast. It seems impossible. Like, it's good that he lost this game because now he's going to fight even harder the next three. But of course, <laughs> there's some people where, you know, they actually enjoy the kind of venting and like the negativity is almost like joking. So I, I also think it's about fitting the, finding the right fit for you. And you're right, because chess is such a large and growing community. You can expand your horizons and make new friends from all over the world, from within U.S. chess in the country. And that's one of the reasons it's such a great game. Uh, one of my fa- another one of my favorite podcasters slash bloggers, James Altucher, um, says that you're the average of the six people that you hang out with the most, which mm. I think is a, a really funny, a really funny line. So if you get high rated chess playing friends, then you're gonna, your rating's going to go up, right? <laughs> Interesting. I'll have to keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that that is that is a that is a funny one. Yeah, but of course it's great to it's great to have both ends. I think to have higher rated people that can help you, but then also people that you are mentoring. And I think that's really admirable about you, Adia. And I just hope that you're also um, finding the benefits because you give so much that I think that uh, you really deserve a lot of, um, you deserve the, the master title. I mean, I know you have more work to put in, but I'm certainly wishing you luck. And I'm really excited for you on this journey of travel and chess and Obviously, uh, the U.S. chess women's community is rooting for you, and I am personally as well. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you so much for joining us on the Ladies' Night. And I anticipate that the next time we have you on, um, it'll be a celebration. Absolutely. Um, thank you again for joining us, Adia. How do we follow you on your journey? Is Chess Traveler at Instagram the best place? Or um, should we join one of your Facebook groups if we want to get to know you more? Well, I, I would say if you are a woman in chess, for sure, to join women and girls do play chess. We, you know, try to basically post about things going on with women in chess around the world. And, you know, I, I 
Phil, it's it's a unique group in that it is predominantly women. I set the goal of saying that I wanted it at all times to be at least 90% women in the group so that we can hear the women's voice. Then there's also Chess Connections, which is another Facebook group. However, it is a closed group. And, <laughs> and uh, to become a part of it, there needs to be someone who within the group who who can vouch for you kind of or who who knows you um but definitely encourage people to come to chess connections and become part of that community and to follow me on instagram at chess traveler uh where i try to post about things going on with me and chess me and the commercial chess league and uh chess and travel well a wonderful idea Anyango, a.k.a. The Chess Traveler. And we are so happy to welcome you on Ladies Night. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Now according to Sockfish, I got it all wrong. After slightly advantage, I had nothing. But my dear Capablanco, you tell me we'll learn more from our defeats. Who needs victories, right? If you like this episode of Ladies Night, be sure to check out all of our podcasts at US Chess, including Cover Stories with Chess Life and One Move at a Time. You can find all archive podcast episodes on the tag podcasts in our U.S. Chess news section. And if listening to this motivates you to make a donation to U.S. Chess Women and our initiative to bring more girls and women into the game, no amount is too small or too large. So please consider making a donation on our website. Thank you very much.